Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and of course, I'm here with my friend and colleague, as normal, Nitin Gower. Good morning, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Glad to be back, back home and back on the show. So. Nitin, I did come a little bit earlier that you looked a touch tired, and that's something to do with the <laughs> fact that you'd done 73 appointments during the consensus period of time. That must have been amazing. It was exhausting, Derek. It was early morning, and then you had, I hardly attended any sessions except my own, and it was, of course, you learn a lot because you're meeting a lot of people, and they have ideas, Ooh. and they have questions. There were some workshops with some of the leading investment management community in the in the in the world. So you learn a lot in the process. You also learn a lot to say that not everybody has all the answers, which is comforting. But I would say that that consensus, which we haven't really reported on the show yet, hmm. was to me very productive. I lost my voice, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> now, I've seen a lot of photographs of you sitting on the stage up at Consensus, and you did a really interesting interview with the CEO of Chainlink too in Consensus. He did. And I think that was such a great event, Sergey Nazarov. I actually known him before he was the founder of Chainlink, which I think is a, such an important project of really, you know, amalgamating the traditional finance and crypto finance, where they're looking at things like oracles, which bring the trusted data into blockchain ecosystems. He was talking about proof of reserve, which is you know, essentially what financial intermediaries do is provide some level of guarantee and certainties that you know, yes, the asset exists. So he's working on all these protocols and the debate that we were having is how do we move the industry together where the financial service industry, which which is again, Ooh. give or take a trillion, 471 trillion globally Ooh. and crypto is still a little hovering over a trillion. What Ooh. happens when they exponentially grow? What does that world look like? So it is a great debate. And I actually thoroughly enjoyed the chat with, with him on the stage. I bet you did. And Nitin, I've often said that you know, history is happening at an extraordinary pace around us in this industry every week. And because of that, you and I have decided that we're going to become a little bit more contemporaneous in what we do with this the show and, and actually pick out some of the best stories each week and kind of dissect them for our audience so the audience can hear what's happening during the week, but really hear the importance in the stories during the week and our take on these stories during the week. And I think that's going to that's going to be immersed in history a little bit more than we have been sometimes with some of our more magazine articles that we've been doing along the way, which have been thoroughly intellectually interesting. So I, I hate to start history with something that sounds trivial, but this is part of history at the moment. And there's a real backstory to it. And that is, of course, the Pepe coin has come out. <laughs> and you know, it, it started in April. There's 391 trillion coins broadly on offering, which is just extraordinary. And and by the way, in the last 24 hours, it's it's gone down. It's gone down 34% in the last 24 hours. Volumes <laughs> up 37%. 93% of the tokens are actually issued, 
which means they're in play. And there's about five holders that own a large amount of it. So what we've seen is, is this extraordinarily simple meme coin that's come out. Now, some of these holders have bought these coins in total, 5.9 trillion of them for $263 and sold them progressively for about $9 million along the period of time. It, it's, it's kind of laughable, but let's look at some basics here and then look at how far the technology's progressed. Firstly, Nitin, what is a meme coin? Yeah, so I think a lot of this meme coin is just momentum driven, which is basically, you know, just like any other meme, it just takes on life of its own. It has this massive network effect and everybody wants a piece of it. And so I think from that perspective, I would like to actually dive deeper into mm. the emergence of these meme coins, right? So if you look mm. at Shiba Inu or Dogecoin, they were a meme mm. coin in the Ethereum era. Mm. And they took a life of their own because they had some representation of either a project or something like what Elon Musk was pushing Dogecoin because it didn't have any utility of sorts. Suddenly it found a, you know, it found this sort of a network effect of individuals who have believed in this technology and believed in these token without understanding the fundamentals or, or utility yes. of it. So I think meme coin take takes over that counterculture that our industry represents, which means that to me, I always am cautious about these meme coins because since FTX, even before FTX, our focus was utility. And meme mm. coins don't represent utility all the time. Mm. And and it's interesting because this period of time right now and this creation of this meme coin shows two things to me. One is that the industry, probably the technology has matured enormously in the last five years. And, and here's my argument for that. You can create a meme coin in less than 30 seconds. So you can create a meme coin using contract wizard by a group called Open Zeppelin and then bolting that contract wizard onto Remix. You can build your meme coin by clicking the features you want in your meme coin and hitting play and it builds a, builds a meme coin based on an ERC20 token. And one was produced called Easy Money, nice name. And it was done in 27 <laughs> seconds. And 24 hours later, someone did a similar token in 22 seconds. Now, what shows the maturity of that is that the technology's got to a point where there's not an entire room full of developers creating a blockchain. You can do it that quickly and you can create a token that quickly. What's the immaturity of it is that these things are still spitting out. And I understand a lot have been produced just in the last week, Nitin. Yeah. No, so two things on this side. One is I used to work in this thing called business process management. So we try to automate the business processes that were trapped in a human-centric element. This is, again, I'm dating myself now, 20, 20 plus years ago. And we had this thematic conversation to say, just because you're automating things doesn't make it smarter. In fact, you've got to make mistakes faster now because you're mm. automating the wrong processes that you're designing in this sort of a tool that we used to call business process management, which was basically the idea was that you shouldn't have to know technology. You can simply craft the business flow. And like, if you're buying an insurance or you're filing a claim, all that could automatedly, you know, being processed and that's happening today, but it had to go through a maturity curve. So I look at this from two perspectives, right? One is I've always gone back to, and many of us have been in this industry for quite some time, including you, Derek. We've talked about utility. We've talked about mm. what is the fundamental nature of disruption, the tokenomic systems that govern the what gives tokens value. We've always focused mm. on that, both mm. in terms of as we are crafting investment thesis, as we're looking into uh, the meme coins versus the utility coins versus 
stable coins, we all have this classification. And if you're expecting individuals who may not have the expertise or may not have, or may have ill intent to use this technology to be able to create these tokens, which are only meant either as a collectible, which has, you know, an, a, a, you know, which implodes the, the network and has, has, I would say the wrong effect on the, on the true utility of the networks. It ends up hurting the industry more than helping it. Mm. So while there's some technical advancement to say, and I've worked with Open Zeppelin and Remix, great tools, ability to craft smart contracts. I think it's fantastic. But if you're allowing for individuals to, to be able to just go and create this coins as game and it takes on, it basically has a reputation that goes with it. Then not only we are misusing the technology at our disposal and taking away from its real utility, which is economic inclusion, ability to move real value across the globe at lower cost, lowering the barriers to access to these newer financial systems. But you also are giving fodder to already contentious regulatory framework for them to say, hey, look, this is not exactly in line with investor protection. And suddenly now you're creating this multi-billion dollar economy. And again, to your example with Pepecoin, there is a whole notion that popped up last week called BRC20. We'll discuss that in a bit. But that had led to 14,200 plus different tokens being created within a week. 14,200 in a week. 200 tokens on BRC20 framework, which is not even proven yet. It's, it was a thesis, a theory, and there were some lines of code that came up with it. Next thing you know, there's a billion dollars trapped in the market cap of these speculative assets that really provide no value, neither to the system, except that now it's taxing the network. Bitcoin network has never been, I think, I believe now it's 485,000 transactions, which are yet to be processed only because of the fact that the, the, the network is crowded with all these 40,200 different tokens that have suddenly showed up in the, you know, within a week. So it's taking away from the real util, you know, utility of the network. It's taking away from what I would have said that let's, you know, uh, and so I, I have a beef against that from the industry. It's a great debate. We need to scale this in, in infrastructure. And maybe this is what Bitcoin needed, short in the arm to say, let's go and go and build this. But, you know, there have been many layer two protocols in Ethereum, and there are layer two protocols in in, in like Stacks, for example, in, in, in Bitcoin. They were trying to solve this problem. But to me, this is not necessarily a good thing. I think the, this is the industry hurting itself at this critical juncture where we are having the serious debate, you know, in regulators around the world. And we've discussed that in, in you know, yeah. the show, but, you know, I would want to look at the innovation and apply the innovation in a meaningful way, which means what are the guardrails that the, the industry itself, which is both the foundations and, you know, people who are interacting with the industry, how do we build this notion of SRO, which I've always talked about, just self-regulatory organizations, which is ensuring that the projects that are coming up have a function and not just are involved in creating this eight eight bit jpegs and trading those jpegs which really adds nothing to this whole system per se i think yeah no very true it, it's very difficult when technology becomes at your fingertips and and very much enabled and the regulator is in fact a parent which doesn't care and, and that's what's happening in this case, you know, it, it's wonderful to say that we are libertarians, let's say, and we believe in a laissez-faire environment, 
But this is what's happening in a laissez-faire environment. A billion dollars gets locked yeah. up into 14,000 yeah. pieces of, of nonsense. And you've got a parent, which not only doesn't care, but really doesn't. This is the parent in America anyway. We'll get onto regulations shortly because there's a lot happening in the rest of the world. But, right. but is actually not wanting to help in, in gently guiding a direction. So you're seeing a kind of phonetic industry happening here where it's just getting created at, a, at an extraordinary rate without guidance. So here's the thing, right? If you look at the time to market, this is from ideation to inception to production. Mm-hmm. In March 2023, which is not too far away, it's literally mm. a month, a little over a month, a pseudonymous crypto programmer called Domo, he asked a question, this is all on Twitter, what, hap- what would happen if you encode Bitcoin to handle fungible tokens? Well, mm-hmm. my response when I read that was, Bitcoin to me is fungible itself. They're 21 million, each Bitcoin is 100 million Satoshis. There are X amount of quadrillion Satoshis if you add up the 21 million times, you know, uh, times 100 million. So you have enough, and these are fungible instruments, right? They're not mm-hmm. exactly non-fungible, which means they're not unique. And if you recall, sometime in January, there was something called Ordinals by a developer called Casey Rotomore, which Ooh. I actually listened to his podcast, and super interesting, right? There, were, there was something in... Taproot, which was in 2021, there was a there was a patch added to to an upgrade of sorts to Bitcoin, and it allowed to add a small amount of data into individual satoshis, which is what mm. the ordinals have called itself as as inscriptions. So it's like you taking a dollar bill, which has you know numbers and which makes it unique, and you can probably have a signature which makes it further you know like mm. your piece of data that lets you identify where things are. It's still a Satoshi in its face value, but it could be something that's unique and you would want to keep it as a, as a collectible, so to speak. Mm. Now, that concept from in March was led to a white paper. So the white paper that was published and a few lines of code later, a BRC20, which is mimed after ERC20, which is Ethereum request for mm-hmm. comments. It is Bitcoin request for comments 20 was born. Now, they're completely separate standards, nothing to do with each other. In fact, I think for the first time, I felt that Ethereum did something more productive than Bitcoin as a core Bitcoiner early days, that they went and had this BRC20. March 2023, this is May first week, and we have a billion dollars worth of economy born within a matter of a month. I think that's phenomenal, but I question on the quality of those billion dollars, that what, where have we scraped that billion dollars from? that could have put better technology, better transaction volumes. And so transaction volumes too, like for example, Bitcoin is clogged. It used to be $1.20 per transaction. Today it's 20 bucks a transaction. You have 485,000 transactions still in the queue to be processed, which has, has tremendous scalability challenge in this whole thing. And at the end of the day, if you look at what it is, if you look at the white paper, it's a token which is a new type of asset that's made and stored on Bitcoin. It, essentially, it's Satoshi and it's got a description. You're not creating any new, mm-hmm. unlike ERC20, which creates more tokens, which simply uses the underlying network for transaction processing. And these tokens have little functionality when compared to similar tokens on, let's say, Ethereum, right? Because if you look at ERC20 token, they represent an asset and you transact with an asset and eventually you use underlying Ethereum to confirm for its transaction finality. Mm. And ultimately, these BRC20 tokens offer no profits, no dividends, 
and a lot of risk, which we'll yeah. see now with Pepe tokens and everything else. So to me, I go back to the roots of it. Like, what have we really achieved from this? Just because the Taproot upgrade offered us to have a small sort of encryption, we have taken that, added a GIF to it. And next thing you know, we are tracking this inscription that requires the system to assign a distinct ID. Mm. I don't know if that's a true innovation. Like we haven't really solved the intended problems of economic inclusion and the global reach and reducing the cost of transaction has created a more mess for someone to go through it. So I'll pause here, Derek, to, to, to get your thoughts. Well, I might look on the flip side of that because I would agree it's not extraordinarily practical or has a great utilitarian use. However, it demonstrates how extraordinary and how expansive the technology is in this space. That within a section of old tech, I mean, the original prototype that's obviously had a number of, of forks on the way through, but within Bitcoin, they've created this entire community, which is validating these NFTs and validating these little tokens against the Satoshis and created a subculture there, which has blossomed into a monetary value. But it's extraordinary how extensive this technology is. And this is some of the most basic technology that's blossomed in a space. Now, has it democratized assets in a particular way? No, maybe not yet, maybe never. But what it's interesting is this technology is so powerful that there are so many offshoots that are coming from it and will continue to come from it, that it, it we, we as humans are going to have to analyze, work out and see the relevance of. I hope that regulators will do something similar. So let's jump through yeah. to, to, to maybe our next story, which is you know wrapped around a little bit of regulation and also you know, maybe just talk about Bitcoin for a moment because Liechtenstein has turned around and said, we plan to accept Bitcoin as payments to the state, said the prime minister. Now, Liechtenstein is a solid monetary center of Europe. It's not as if it's a small, you know, broken economy somewhere that's struggling to be. No, Liechtenstein is, is huge wealth in Liechtenstein. And here they are thinking they might accept Bitcoin as payments. It's a step forward, isn't it? Yeah, I've been to Liechtenstein. It's a small principality. Yes, it does have economic sort of power because it's tied to Switzerland and there's all kinds of wealth in the region. I think it's a great step in the sense that if you begin to, again, I think one of the objective of both, you know, Liechtenstein and Switzerland, having these open conversations and looking and understanding the changing nature of, of you know, of, of economy and digital sort of assets that are emerging in the economic system. I think this is more symbolic, Derek, in the sense that mm. these countries, including Switzerland and, and Liechtenstein, already are home to many financial institutions who are custodying crypto, namely Bitcoin mm -hmm. and Ethereum as a store of value. So they have familiarity with it. They now have banking risk models that have evolved over time. So there are financial institutions, and we've known many of them, the Bitcoin Swiss and the Signum in Switzerland, Bank of Liechtenstein in Liechtenstein. They have been working on this for several years. So I think there's an implied understanding of risk. And they also now have in their overall treasury frameworks, the ability to accept Bitcoin, convert them into euro or Swiss francs and use them as internal instruments. So I don't, I don't think they see a lot of risk in that model, but it certainly gives them an avenue to attract not just the wealth, but the talent, exactly what we discussed yes. on this show attract talent and attract capital from all over the world to say, hey, now we can go to Liechtenstein and it's a, it's a, it's a legal tender. 
behind yeah. the scenes, they maybe it's exactly what Amazon did early days, accept your bitcoins, convert them into Swiss francs, yes, and yes. use them into the treasury. Not a big <laughs> deal, but but it gives them headlines, which I think is yeah. is a positive attitude towards the asset class. It forces the banks, it forces the treasury, it forces the Ministry of Finance to look at this, understand the risks, and at yes. least create the guardrails to protect themselves from any misgivings or any sort of economic catastrophe that could be envisioned, which I think is a positive thing, Derek. Yeah. Hey, staying close to there, of course, MICA only just recently was endorsed by the European Union. And what's interesting now is because of MICA's endorsement, one assumes, you know, Europe's looking, the, the European blockchain industry is looking at scrapping you know, smart contract laws that might kill or reduce DeFi utilization in, in Europe. It just goes to show you, once you start putting in regulations that are positive, positive things come from it. Are, are you listening, Mr. Gensler? Anyway, positive <laughs> things come from it. And, and already they're looking at turning around and saying, well, how do we scrap re regulations that are going to reduce, you know, the, the, the utilization of decentralized finance? It's a good step forward. No, certainly positive. And, and I think we've seen, again, this week alone, and for the first time, both Gemini and, and Coinbase announced their first derivative trading platforms in Bermuda, which was actually impeding for the longest time. I think in many ways, uh, the fact that Coinbase has one of the most prominent and most regulated mm. institutions mm. in, in, in the US has gone out of the US and now begin to see its, its competing pie with Binance, which is the largest exchange in the world, not only a, a spot exchange, but also a derivative exchange. So I think, to me, some of these things may be positive thing for the industry, Derek, in the sense mm. that now suddenly you'll find the same with the same rigor, which, you know, depending on where you look at which which geo, which region you're in, the Coinbase has a reputation, and it's a good reputation that they've approached this and they understand the industry, they've had the lineage, they have a great CEO at the helm and who's looking at this from a pragmatic perspective and offering good products. And because they could not succeed in many of these initiatives in the US, they found an avenue to go and succeed them. And they haven't really opened up the kimono altogether. They have they are being you know, prudent about who they allow access to their markets and allowing some of the foreign sort of trading firms to connect them. And they have, again, explicitly said they'll not make the same mistake that FTX and Alameda did. They'll not have a trading firm that trades against their customers. They'll keep those, you know, that business is not their business, which mm. means they're simply going in what they know better in terms of exchange, which I think is a very positive approach from that perspective. And I think today he was at at UAE, and he spoke to Vara and spoke to Ministry of Finance in UAE, and potentially, uh, you know, alluded to the fact that UAE could be the potential international headquarters for Coinbase. So I think suddenly now, which is confined to the US market, because of these regulatory actions and not having regulatory clarity in the US, I think, to me, Coinbase may grow much faster than they had planned to, yes. because now they have access to the globe. Yes. I mean, the irony of this whole attack by the SEC is that while the SEC is attacking this really future of funds, future of money, future of banking, future of funds management, which is the crypto asset world, their banking system is cracking and they are rushing to support it in the form of US state banks and in the form, of course, of Silvergate and and you know each one of the other banks that just recently you know struggled and had to be supported by the government and and so you know the the likes of silicon valley bank 
and the the likes of Silvergate, the likes of the state banks that we're seeing getting supported by it, you know, they 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 ran into financial difficulties due to the regulatory problems that they've got as a bank, having to hold large amounts of of bonds, seeing interest rates rise, you know, nearly 500 basis points over a period of time, seeing their bond assets drop, seeing their balance sheets drop, and seeing a run on the bank. That's a financial system that is not working correctly. Yet at the same time, while they're trying to patch the holes in the wall, they're attacking a young system that really needs to to grow and be able to step into that. But as we keep saying, there's America and then there's the rest of the world. And so meanwhile, over over in Hong Kong, it's very interesting because they're looking at doing the opposite of that. You know, the region's securities regulator has noted that they're proposing to allow retail traders access to licensed crypto platforms um, in its new licensing regime proposals, which it calls virtual asset service providers. And so they're saying there's a lot of talent, this is interesting, across the border. And he's impl- that he says a fair amount of it's unemployed in China. Right? Then he says there's a lot of talent that's coming from big tech. So they're looking at building big tech talent that's coming towards Hong Kong talent that's in China, and of course, building the, the crypto industry in a larger way based out of Hong Kong. And, and he's saying, look, it's just common sense. You know, people are adopting crypto inside their portfolios. Whether you're talking about a retail side, he says, or whether you're talking about high net worth institutional investors, everyone's looking at putting a little bit of crypto into their tech, into their portfolio and getting exposure to this. And so the narrator of this is saying that, you know, he thinks Hong Kong is now back in business. And he says, we're opening it up and we intend to be a competitor on a global stage. We said this was going to happen, didn't we, Nitin? We did. And, I, and actually, I question some of the things, Derek, in the sense that, yes, if you remember the time in China banned crypto or banned Bitcoin, mm-hmm. Mm. crypto in general, India benefited greatly from it because talent and and a lot of startups were born in India at the time. And a lot of capital moved to India for many startups that are now flourishing Polygon and ENS and so on and so forth. And I believe if, if, so let's say, if US didn't have the privilege of being the custodial of the reserve currency of the world, if US dollar was not the reserve currency of the world, would would the attitude change only because now we have to preserve and protect the dollar hegemony because that gives us a lot of advantages and, and privileges to the American system per se. So I question that to say, what if that was not the case? And what if we were dealing with competing priorities around the world? Would we not doubling down on this? Because at the end of the day, Derek, historically from printing press to coal to energy equation, technology has always given the leg up to edge up of of any civilization, any mm. economy. Mm. And I would classify this to be the similar you know, gravity as we've always compared blockchain to, to internet, which is information revolution. Now it's going to be value revolution. And I always question that, say that technology, while it's deflationary, which means eventually it will bring down the cost of production of financial units and financial transactions, and it's deflationary. And so is growth. Growth is, growth is deflationary. Things eventually goes down to the lowest cost of single unit of production. So I always look in these sort of framework and say, is the resistance because of the, the, the need to protect the US dollar hegemony? And 
can we not exponentially grow the same level of expense that we've had with the US dollar in, in doubling down on the technology and doubling down on what Singapore and what Hong Kong is doing? having a much more positive attitudes and 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 preserving keeping the talent in the country keeping the innovation that the united states has been known for i question that but i i agree with you i think it's the world against the united states and i say okay fine if us is not seeing the value in this can we not attract the talent capital in other parts of the world and uae is doing that and mm. saudi is doing that with their gnome's project mm. i know there's been a lot of work at cbdc there are now close to 141 banks in the world, central mm-hmm. banks in the world who are looking at mm-hmm. central bank digital currencies. Yes. yes. And so I I tend to agree with you, Derek. I think it's one of those things that the world is saying that, okay, fine, let's go and grab this pie of this innovation that will give us the leg up. And I don't think we have, at least from my vantage point, living in the United States and looking at this and looking at the the pace at which this is moving we don't have a strategic focus. I think we've got to figure out and yeah. understand the implication of the industry, which is not there. I think there's a lot of political banter happening in the country as opposed to focusing on the strategic growth imperatives. Yes. It's interesting. The irony of it is for the same reason in many ways that the US is trying to stop cryptocurrency, many other countries are now deciding this is a good sure. time to push it. And that is a shame. And the US can either look at it and say, we'll do everything we possibly can to maintain the US dollar as a reserve currency. And, and that means regulate everything else to oblivion. Or they might be able to turn around and say, we still want to retain the reserve currency. How do we possibly do that? Utilizing brilliant technology, yeah. you know, implementing a CBDC that, that meets the requirements of the American population is seamless, highly efficient, and, and, and low cost to be able to transact globally, you know, is an open currency that's not tracking every single person's transactions possibly around the world, because maybe that would be a reason why it would become a stabilized or a rather reserve currency. Many things, if they could look at that and say, that's what we want to produce, and we're going to produce extraordinarily brilliant technology around it and lead it, then all of a sudden I think America's on the right track. But I think what they're doing is they've returned to their bunkers, they're threatened, and they've bought their guns out, and they're ready to fight. And I actually don't know whether they're going to get a fight, because I think the rest of the world is just developing technology around them. Yeah, and and what's amazing to me is this, right? If you look at Hong Kong's rhetoric, they actually have made an explicit statement that (laughs) they had to make the statement to say, Banks are not explicitly prohibited. In fact, they're encouraging the financial, the banking system yes. Yes. to let crypto industries open an account, which is opposite of United States. MAS Singapore has been exper- experimenting, and I've during my IBM days has to go to Singapore quite a bit. And they have the phase five of their project Guardian, which is experimenting on creating financial systems and public chain. So they've had some interesting experiments they've done, which means they're not going all in. They're providing this regulatory sandbox to say, go and try these things so we understand the risk. And let's understand the public chain and let's understand these protocols like Uniswap and Aave and lending and mm-hmm. borrowing and some of these protocols that allows them to be able to experiment these things, which reduces the cost of, again, technology is deflationary. They want to be able to use the technology to be able to reduce the cost of a single unit of production, which is in this case, fiat, or a token that may represent a Singaporean dollar, for instance. So that is... To me, those experiments leads to learnings that leads to de-risking, that leads yes. to better systems that you de- devise. VARA in Dubai or UAE 
has built an amazing framework. I spoke to Henry Yerslanian, amazing gentleman. Yeah, we all a huge fan of him. He had yep. a massive following. So I, I met up with him, and he was so such a you know vocal support supporter of Vara. I imagine someone in in in, in financial service industry singing praises of their of their regulator. He was <laughs> like, they're so good. Yeah. He's like, they're you know they have enough capital you know requirements, so they don't let anyone in, but they want to make sure that they're proceeding with caution with this new industry and having enough guardrails to ensure that people who are applying for the right licensing have the right acumen, have the right capital requirements. So they're Mm. protecting the consumer. So if I look at these experiments, I think we could take learn lessons from all these entities Mm. and build a combinatorial framework in the US that protects consumers, fosters innovation, and lets us grow from that model. And I'm just envious as as a resident in the United States, that I wish we could do all of that, which is what we did in the past. Yeah, very much so. Here, here, Nitin, I I have a prediction. I think the U.S. will be left behind for a period of time. I think there'll be a degree of chaos. I think there'll be a reckoning, and then the U.S. will realise they're being left behind, and then they'll become fast followers, and they'll race to catch up with the rest of the world. Over what period of time? probably three years, because remember, three years in this industry is like 27 years. So (laughs) I think over the next three years, they'll have a reckoning and they'll start turning a corner because there's going to be just too much tide swinging against them in a period of time. That's my thought. Let's see in three years time whether that's vaguely right or not. But for now, let's come to the end of our program. It's really great to be able to discuss contemporaneous news and dissect it a little bit. I hope everyone enjoys this. Please, you know, send us a note if you want. Send us comments on the on the YouTube or or contact Nitin or I. We're delighted to hear what your feedback is, and we're going to deep dive more in the events that are happening, history that's happening every single week that we are fortunate enough to be observers of. Thanks, Nitin. Have a great week. Thanks, Derek. Good to be here. Take care. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.